Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. If you don't have a copy of the notes, I'd encourage you to get a copy uh, there on the back table there. This is the fourth and final uh, midweek fellowship uh, gathering in this block of our, of our four-week summer series of the midweek fellowship. We have been looking at eschatology, the end times, a study of last things. We started off by looking at millennial views, uh, the different views that Christians have of the millennium, looking at post-millennium, amillennium, premillennium, premillennialism, historic, and then a newer version, dispensational. Then um, we looked at the second coming of Jesus, kind of zeroing in on events surrounding that in the second week. Then in the third week, which was last week, we looked at what we would call personal eschatology, or what happens when you die. And hopefully that was encouraging to you. And then tonight we're going to take up um, a question that has been uh, a source of much discussion and even debate amongst Christians over the centuries. This idea of the relationship between Israel and the church. So I throw that in there, this word debate and discussion, because this is one of those issues that is particularly thorny. And for some reason... It seems to be that people um, uh, at times are very, very passionate about this. And I think that there's good reason for that. I think we should be passionate about theology. But I think that we need to also exhale a little bit and realize that very faithful Christians over the history of the church um, have been on kind of, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum on this. And that's, and that's okay. So we can have certainly uh, intense discussions but I think we should be very, very gracious towards one another. Um, and again, uh, this falls within, uh, I think, uh, an area of theology that very faithful Christians can agree to disagree on. Um, I would not say that about all areas of doctrine. I wouldn't say that about the work of Christ on the cross. I wouldn't say that about the inerrancy of Scripture. I wouldn't say that about the Trinity. I wouldn't say that about the exclusivity of Jesus. I wouldn't say that about the sinfulness of man. Uh, but I, I would say this particular issue is, um, is challenging, complex, nuanced, and, um, and requires way more than just an hour <laughs> to, to really unpack. So we're on a bit of a fool's errand, um, but we're going to do our best to at least you know, grab, our, grab some handlebars and figure out a little bit more. The other thing that I want to say before I pray and begin is that... Um, just that very challenge is, is that there are people in this room who have thought very deeply about this and who are very interested in this and have very developed and defined views on this. And then there are people in this room who have never even thought about this, who may not even yet be trusting in Christ. You may think you are, but you're not, and you're here, and, you know, and, and so I'm kind of welcoming you into my world. That's kind of like a pastoral burden every time I get up in front of a crowd, uh, whether it's a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, I'm wanting to kind of bridge that gap between people who are very deep into these issues and others who are maybe um, hearing about them for the first time and wanting it to be edifying for everybody. So a bit of what we'll do is try and strike kind of a middle ground of depth that hopefully will pull up some of those people that um, haven't thought about this and maybe help to clarify and be at least somewhat helpful to uh, to people that, that have spent a lot of time thinking about this. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. As I pray, let me also just mention that there's a young man from the church, Clayton Bond, um, who is in the youth group, a sweet family, Drew and Julie Bond. Drew's in the Army. He's actually getting his Ph.D. at Auburn right now, and then he's, when he, they leave Fort Benning, he's going to West Point to be an instructor. And uh, Clayton had uh, brain surgery today in Atlanta. This was his second. He's been suffering from seizures for a good part of his life. And so they're doing some investigative surgery on um, you know, how to fix that. So they had a, like a preliminary surgery a couple days ago where they gathered some data. And then there was a surgery today, a long surgery, like a six-hour surgery. Got an email from Drew, his dad, that the surgery went well. But, you know, there's, these next 24 hours are very crucial, not only for his recovery, but also for uh, just 
you know, data gathering and knowledge and kind of a, a way forward for the physicians. So this is a, a, a very important 24 hours. So I'm going to pray for, for Clayton, sweet, sweet kid. You probably see him around, um, just a great kid. Let me pray for him and pray for our time together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ that we can gather and open up your word and discuss important theological things. Uh, we come to you now in Jesus' name, praying for our brother Clayton, this sweet, uh, precious young man who we love very much and who, uh, it, in your kind providence, you put him in a wonderful family, a mom and dad who love Jesus and Clayton loves you, and we're so thankful for good doctors and amazing medical technology that can figure these things out. But nevertheless, our hope is in you. You are the Lord that heals, and we pray that you would use the common grace of modern medicine as one of your means to bring health to Clayton so that he would be able to serve you more fervently and he'd be free from this. But in all of this, Lord, we know that you work all things together for the good for your people who you have called. And so we pray that in whatever these coming days, months, years hold, that you would be good and gracious to Clayton and the Bonds. We pray that you would bring health and healing to him. And we pray that you would use this very difficult and I'm sure anxious time for the family to draw them closer, even closer to Christ, and to be a great witness uh, through this family to an onlooking world. So we love, our, we love that family. We lay them before you. And help us tonight as we think about these important issues in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to try and answer this question tonight of what is the relationship between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. I'm going to, and then if we have time, we're going to just look at a few maybe helpful hints on how to approach biblical prophecy. And then we're going to, Lord willing, end with some concluding exhortations and remarks that I, I hope will kind of wrap up our four-week series together. So I am painting with very broad strokes right now. There's much more nuance, much more variations of each one of these views so I'm painting with broad strokes to kind of keep it uh, as, 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 digestible as, I, as digestible as I can. So there are three general views about the relationship between Israel and the church. And I have them marked there on your front page there of the notes. Uh, we'll start with letter A. The first view would be that Israel in the Old Testament and the church are entirely distinct Groups. Now, this uh, primarily is the, the, the view of traditional dispensational theologians. Now, I realize that there may be many people who have dispensational convictions in other areas who wouldn't go so far as to adhere to everything that traditional dispensationalism believes about Israel. I realize that. I realize that, you know, there's, there's no two snowflakes that look alike or whatever. You know, there's no two groups of people in any theological category that are going to believe everything the same. So I'm just kind of painting with broad strokes here on what traditional dispensationalism would view, uh, how they would view the relationship between Israel and the church. Just a couple bullet points. They would believe, this view would believe that God has two distinct and separate programs in history. One for Israel, which is God's earthly people, and one for the church, which would be God's heavenly people. They believe that the Old Testament promises that sometime in the future, God will establish an earthly Jewish kingdom, reestablish an earthly Jewish political kingdom. Although Old Testament, the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant, and when we say Abrahamic, we're talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Although that included promises to the spiritual seed of Abraham, which would be Christians, the church, its central promise was that Abraham's physical descendants would be given the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So just to orient you a little bit, in this particular view, the, the actual the physical land of, of Canaan, Palestine, the actual you know, real land that exists today, the repossession of that by Israel, the reacquisition of that is very, very important. And, well, that happened in 1948, and the continued possession of that to all of its extent is very 
is very important in this particular perspective. This view would also hold that the New Testament church consists only of believers saved between Pentecost and the second coming. And the New Testament church is a parenthesis in God's plan for and dealings with Israel. So remember, there's kind of this distinction that God has two programs um, in history, one for Israel and one for the church. And the church is a kind of parenthesis. So once the church is raptured out of the world, God will resume his dealings with ethnic Israel. Now again, you, if you consider yourself dispensational, some of that may be news to you, and you may not adhere to all of that. I'm not, I'm not trying to put you in this box. I'm just saying that's kind of the historic roots of dispensational thought. So remember when we looked at the millennial views, and we talked about the rapture, and how that was a very new um, uh, uh, perspective that, uh, and actually very American and very new perspective that really came about in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Before that time, well, not virtually, all Christians really believed in a, just a singular event of the coming of Christ, whether whether it was a premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial. And then in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this perspective of dispensationalism came about, um, and that these particular scholars and theologians saw a real distinction between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. And I believe that really led, that was part of the emphasis on the rapture of the church because they saw these distinct purposes. And so they saw these prophecies of the Old Testament and they seek to see them literally fulfilled in, um, in Israel in this age. And so I think that led to this um, idea of Jesus coming, and I'm not saying this is wrong, I'm just saying I think this is part of a whole system that fits together. Jesus is coming to rapture the church out, and then there's this seven-year tribulation, and then the millennium. And so this, the church being raptured out of the earth before, you know, Jesus' first coming, and then Jesus' second coming, and then his second coming, part B. This, this is part of the kind of dispensational idea of the rapture is, is really necessary in their whole view of Israel and the church. So the church needs to be removed from the earth, and then God would begin or re-engage Israel. And so um, that, that's the um, kind of, in, with painting with broad strokes, the view that Israel and the church are entirely distinct groups. A major challenge to this view is that it sees much, it sees, I think, too much discontinuity between the Old and New Testament and thus misses the significance of texts that point to a great deal of continuity between Israel and the church. So, for example, and we'll read these verses in a little bit, Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't see Israel and the church as two distinct groups. It sees Israel and the church as the middle wall of separation being torn between these two and then becoming one new man. So let me just read a little bit from Ephesians chapter 2, verse, um, verse 11. Paul is writing here to Gentiles. He says, Remember that, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, you were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the same, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Us meaning, Paul speaking here, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And we won't take the time to read those other scriptures because we'll get to them later. But one challenge of this view is uh, that, that I think that it doesn't account for the New Testament emphasis not on the separation of, the, of Jew and Gentile, but of the union of Jew and Gentile and all who believe in Christ. And like in, for example, in Galatians 3, verse 28, it would say that there is neither Jew nor Greek 
or Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's, that's uh, the view that Israel and the church are entirely distinct. Another view, again, painting with broad strokes here, is that the new church replaces Old Testament Israel. This sometimes is referred to as replacement theology. Now, I just want to get on record here publicly, being recorded, I do not hold to this view. <laughs> I think there's like this rumor going around Columbus that, uh, that me and the pastors at Crosspoint are, believe in replacement theology. I don't believe in replacement theology. I think it's wrong. I'm going to tell you why I think it's wrong. Um, I, think what ha- I think the origin of this suspicion of me as a replacement theologian, which quite frankly, when I first heard it seven or eight years ago, I didn't even know what the word meant, so I had to look it up and, oh, that, that's not what I believe. So what happened was about seven or eight years ago, when we were just starting out as a church, we had these offices, long before we moved into this building, we had these offices over on by Mellow Mushroom. And this organization, a national organization that you may be familiar with called Christians United for Israel was having a rally here in town at another church, and this particular organization is led by, uh, nationally by a, a well-known preacher named John Hagee out of Texas. Now, I want to be gracious here, but I just think John Hagee is a false teacher. He is a, he is, no, I'm, not, I'm sorry, sir. I think he, I'm not saying he's not a Christian. I think he, I think he really gets a lot of things very, very, very wrong. I think he hangs around with health and wealth, prosperity gospel charlatans on TBN, and um, I, think he, I think he just has a lot of poor, poor teaching. He is the head of this organization called Christians United for Israel, at least sort of the main guy involved in it, and he um, has very, very, very hardcore dispensational views. He actually wrote a book claiming that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, and he really purports this two-track view of salvation between Israel and the church. And he was so harshly criticized for that that he actually had to rewrite the book and put out a second edition. And you may say, well, he corrected his views. But, I mean, he, this was in, within the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And this guy's been preaching for 40 years. I mean, you can't get that wrong. Anyway, the, the, this group of Columbus folks asked if they could host an organizational meeting for Christians United for Israel meetings at our offices, and I just said, look, I love Israel. I'm all for Israel, and we can talk about that, but this particular organization, I think, is led by a guy that I don't want to endorse because I think he teaches so much false stuff. And then from that, all of a sudden, I became this tin-headed dragon replacement theologian. So anyway, I, am, I don't believe in replacement theology. Um, but here's what replacement theology um, is, holds to. They would hold that the New Testament church has replaced Israel. So it's kind of like almost the opposite of uh, the dispensational distinct view. They would hold that the New Testament church has replaced Israel. And that Jews may still be saved on an individual basis by coming to Christ. But the nation of Israel as a people no longer have any part to play in redemptive history. And I think, um, because I've been thinking like, where... Like where is any even hint of, of spiritual, I mean, of biblical evidence for this? I think they would probably point to, and it's hard because I don't really know anybody that's a, that it's a, that's a replacement theologian. I think anybody, I think sometimes people that are very ardent in their view of the distinction between Israel and the church um, uh, sort of throw the label of replacement theologian out to anybody that doesn't agree with them. And I, I just, I just kind of, so I, I don't really know of anybody that's a replacement theologian. Maybe some extreme covenantal Presbyterian people, um, but I, I couldn't find anybody that is. I think maybe the place where uh, they get that from, or whoever would be a replacement theologian, would get, get that from Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, which is the parable of the uh, unfaithful workers of the vineyard, where Jesus, you know, um, tells these, vineyard, these workers of the vineyard to work this, work, tend his vineyard, they're unfaithful, and so he cuts them off, he fires them, and he brings in new workers. Now that is clearly speaking about Israel and, and the Gentiles, but um, if that's all that the Scripture said about Israel and the Gentiles, we might think that there could be something there, but the Scripture says there's a whole lot more about God's plan for Israel later on, and the, the, I think the, 
the, um, the continuity between Old Testament and New Testament people of God. So I, I think we just have to um, clearly go on the record by saying I just I think that that is um, a, a false view. A major challenge to this view would be Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul speaks of God's remnant chosen by grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament and points towards God's mercy on ethnic Israel again, which we'll get to in a moment when we look at Romans 11, verses 24 through 26. Let me pause there before I get into uh, C, which I think would be with a lot of nuance kind of where I would stand and answer any just quick questions about um, those two overviews. All right, well, let's keep going. Letter C, which um, is the view that I, and listen, I'm still filling in the blanks in my mind. I think this is a very, this is a very difficult uh, portion of theology to piece together. But here's what I would hold. And I left a blank there at the bottom because I'm about to draw a picture and I'm not an artist. So I'm about to embarrass myself with poor artistic talent. But we're going to draw a picture here in just a second. This view would hold that there is one people of God across the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, clearly it was uh, Israel. But even within ethnic Israel, you always had a true Israel, believing Israel, called a remnant. And then in the New Testament, the New Testament church is begun with the remnant, true Israel, believing Jews. And then Gentiles, as was promised to the first Jew, Abraham, in Genesis 12, who was made a Jew just by caveat from God, like, you're no longer a pagan, you're a Jew. Then then now the Gentiles are grafted into Israel. And so whether you want to call it true Israel, the church, the Israel of God, it's one people of God across the Old and New Testament. And Israel in the Old Testament was always ethnic in its exterior, but true believing Israel um, at at its core. And then it finds its, it finds its consummation and completion as is promised when the Gentiles are grafted in. And then Jews, ethnic Jews, are regrafted in at the end um, in Romans chapter 11. So let me read a couple bullet points and then draw a picture. Within ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, there was always a believing remnant. So I think you've got to get this, is that true Jewness... True Israel was never about being merely ethnically Jewish. It was always about true Israel, believing Israel, being a child of Abraham in faith. Ethnic Jews that rejected Christ were cut off from the covenant. Believing Gentiles in the New Testament and a spattering of them in the Old Testament are grafted into the people of God, true Israel. And then finally, God will regraft a great number of ethnic Jews back into the people of God. And we read about that in Romans eleven twenty four through 26, which we're going to get to. So right there, that just absolutely, that just absolutely um, negates replacement theology. So let's draw, um, let's draw here just a, a very... Elementary, um, and no illustration is perfect, but let me just give you my best attempt. Let's look at the analogy that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11, okay? So I'm going to draw a tree trunk. He, get, he uses the analogy of, of an olive tree, okay? And that tree is the people of God, true Israel. So let's just write here, the people of God. Israel. True Israel. And the root of this tree is obviously Jesus. Okay? And we're going to read a little bit in Romans 9, 10, and 11. In the Old Testament, this tree had really two branches. In a sense, it had... had and forgive my very rudimentary branch here, but it had, it had um, 
believing Israel. Right? And this is, this is Abraham, Moses, you know, uh, the prophets, the patriarchs, right? Many, many, many true believing, um, believing Israel. But you also had ethnic Israel that was unbelieving. Unbelieving ethnic Israel. And these are people that are cut off from the covenant. They're, 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 they're covenant breakers. And so you always had this, and you see this in, you see this in Romans uh, chapter 9. You see, um, let me read a little bit in Romans chapter, um, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. Um, okay, go down to verse 6. He's, he, Paul is lamenting about how many Jews have not trusted in Christ. Many ethnic Jews have not trusted in Christ. And he is wanting to... Uh, answer the potential objection that God's word has failed. God's promise has failed. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So in this text, Paul is explaining to us that there's much of ethnic Israel that were unbelieving and they don't belong to Israel. So what, so for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as the offspring. So Paul is clearly telling us that there's a believing Israel, which is true Israel, and there's unbelieving Israel, which is, which is cut off. Um, and in believing, uh, believing Israel, here we have, um, we, we have Abraham, Moses, all these Old Testament saints. And then believing Israel becomes the New Testament church. This is the, uh, this is the 12 apostles, right? They're all Jewish. This is the 120 gathered at Pentecost, and then remember, the Holy Spirit falls, and it says that Jews um, and proselytes, are, so mainly Jews from all around, were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And all of these, this early church is all Jewish. In fact, the early church is really all Jewish up until about Acts chapter 8. And so the, these are, these are, this is believing Israel. Now, believing Israel is... Um, is starts to take the gospel believing Israel true Israel the church one and the same people is now spreading the gospel they're having internal discussions about whether or not these pork eating bacon loving gentiles that you know aren't, aren't keeping the law and aren't being circumcised can be part of the church they conclude in Acts chapter 15 that these gentiles that God is pouring out his spirit amongst the gentiles which, by the way, is what he, what he promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And now God grafts into the true Israel of God another branch, the Gentiles. The believing Gentiles. Not, obviously not all, but the believing Gentiles. Right? And this believing Gentiles is, you know, it's... Greeks and people in the New Testament. It's also in the Old Testament, it, it should be noted that there was a, just a spattering of believing Gentiles in the Old Testament. Ruth and um, Rahab and others that believed. There was always this provision for sojourners and believers to come. And so we have here Acts 8 and um, the, the Samaritans become Christians. We see in Acts 10, um, Cornelius and his household, the Roman um, uh, become Christians. We see in Acts chapter 
19, the Ephesians become Christians. We see in Acts chapter 15, this church council of the Jewish apostles deciding that, yes, God is moving amongst the Gentiles. And so we see that these believing Gentiles have been grafted into Israel, the people of God. And we read Paul's commentary on this in Romans chapter 9 through 11. So let me just read a little bit out of Romans chapter 11. Very important text when we're thinking about Israel and the church. Romans 11 verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Right? So Paul is still taking up this question. What about all of these unbelieving Jews who rejected the Messiah? Okay? And Paul is defending the righteousness of God from the accusations that it failed. I asked him, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you know that the scripture, do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Okay, so Elijah's complaining like all these, my people who are fighting against you. And what's God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's in 1 Kings 19. And it's talking about this remnant of believing Israel. Verse 5, very important. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So what Paul is saying is there has always been a true Israel within ethnic Israel. And it is a remnant chosen by grace. God has always had a people that wouldn't bow their knee to this world. And that that was all the way through the Old Testament when God called Abraham. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Paul is saying that there was an elect, a true Israel, that obtained the knowledge of Christ, and the rest were we're hardened. Let's keep going. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, now it starts, now he's starting to talk about the Gentiles. Verse 11, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Paul is speaking primarily to uh, Gentiles in the Roman church here, and he's saying, hey, this happened. God hasn't failed. He always had a true Israel amongst believing Israel. And part of the reason he was doing this was to bring in this graft of the Gentiles, and part of the reason he's bringing in the graft of the Gentiles is to make Jews jealous, which we're going to see here in just a second, he's going to use to bring a great number of Jews back into his people. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, verse 13. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So he's pointing towards this future great conversion of Jewish people. If the dough offered as first fruits fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So we can say this, that he's, that's the analogy of this olive tree, right? There's this olive tree that, that is the people of God. And what he's saying is, is that some of the branches, unbelieving Israel, was broken off. And believing Gentiles were grafted in. For if their rejection, okay, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, were grafted in 
among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off of their unbelief, but you stand fast through through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, now it gets glorious, even more glorious. Verse 23. And even if they, and even, and, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Now, who's they? He's speaking of these unbelieving ethnic Jews who've been cut off, and now he's coming back around and he's saying, God is so gracious that even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, verse 23, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in, in other words, God took a wild tree and put you in the true tree, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25 and 26, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening. Many unbelieving Jews. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take their sins away. Now, that phrase, all Israel will be saved, virtually no one believes that that means that every single ethnic Jew will be grafted back in and saved. But virtually every Bible commentator across the spectrum believes that that just means that there will be a great number, a great number of Jews that God will... And here's our fourth branch. God will graft back in New Testament believing Jews and they will be re-grafted. Now, this is beyond the purview of our discussion tonight, but there's, this, there's differences of opinion about what that re-grafting looks like. Some Christians believe that it's over the long course of the history of the church, like from the resurrection until now, that just over the course of time, spattering, spattering, spattering of Jews being saved, and that's certainly been the case. Others look to a more definitive future sort of revival amongst Jews. Um, I, you know, I, we, we don't want to need to necessarily get into that, but, but virtually all Christians, I think, except for maybe replacement folks, and again, I don't really know any of those, see this as, as speaking of some regrafting in of God. So you have then this tree here that is the people of God, true Israel, the olive tree. So I want you to see the continuity here is that, let me, I'll go back to this in just a second if you're wanting to finish that up, is that you have here at the, at the final analysis, you have the people of God. And it, it, includes, it includes believing. Of course, the root of it, I mean, the, 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 the foundation of it, as far as people, is believing Jews. And it includes believing Gentiles. And then it's New Testament grafted in Jews. And all of these people, this is the... This is the Ephesians 2, one new man, the church, that has been the church, that has been God's people, a one continuous God's people from different, different manifestations, started out as ethnic Israel, always a true Israel, crystallized into the New Testament church of all ethnic Jewish believers. The promise back in Genesis 12 is fulfilled. Now Gentiles are coming in. Unbelieving Jews have been cut off. And now believing Jews will be regrafted back in in a great way. And then Jesus will come and there will be one new man. And this one new man 
is ultimately Christ, right? He is the head, and we are the body of Christ, one new man. We are one in Christ. Friends, that's why marriage is so significant, right? Because, because when a man and a woman, I'm getting on a rabbit trail here, but it's so good, when a man and a woman, that's why marriage is so important, because a man and a woman, as they, as they, as they commit to spend their lives together through hell and high water, no matter how difficult it gets, it becomes a reflection of how Jesus will never, he can't separate himself from a body. How can a man rip himself in two? And that's what marriage is meant to reflect, but I'm getting off topic, so let me get back in because I'll get excited. Okay, any questions about, let me come back over here. Any questions? I, I think there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot, but I, I see great continuity. So what's the relationship of Israel and the church? I think we've always had, let me, let me write it another way, is we've had one people of God. I think in the Old Testament, you had, you had Israel, ethnic Israel, right? But within ethnic Israel, you had true Israel, believing Jews. Nobody will be saved because they are ethnically Jew. They will only be saved because they are trusting in Christ, because they have the seed of Abraham's faith in them. And then this, this, uh, this Israel, because of the cross, then Jesus comes and he establishes his, in the New Testament, it's called the church. The Old Testament is called Israel, but it's the people of God much continuity. And even in the church, you know, we have everybody that comes into the church make, call themselves Christians, but there's, a, there's still a remnant, an elect by grace. And this is the church. This is true Israel. And Gentiles have been grafted into this true Israel, which started out with Abraham and continues through Gentiles grafted in, and then all of these branches that were fallen off and cut off, many Jews will be grafted back. People won't be brought back from the dead. Don't misunderstand me. But unbelieving Jews, because of God's kindness, will be brought in, and the people of God continue as one continuous great act of grace of God from beginning to end, when God will bring his people safely home. And there will be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We will all be one in Christ. Questions about that before we flip the page? Yes, Andrew. Sure. So I had a question about, um, I guess, the, the promises that uh, God makes to Israel. Yes. Um, I mean, because we, well, I guess one of the things that we say is that, like, God gives what he requires, you know, that he requires mm-hmm. faith, you know, of us. And so, and, and the covenants are also kind of two, two ways. And there was a response expected by Israel that they would give. And so I guess, you know, in order um, to be, I guess, to be saved. And so when we're thinking of like the covenants in the Old Testament, were they given to believing Israel, the remnant, or were they given to all ethnic, you know, Israel, and yeah. then some people were covenant breakers. I guess I'm having a hard time yeah. understanding That's a great question. Breakers. Here's how I see it, Andrew, and this is just my off the top of my head. I, I think that the expressions of the covenant in the Old Testament are really just kind of seeds of the gospel. And so the covenant is given to all, and there is the elect who obtain it, and that's all by grace. God gives them what he requires of them. And the rest are hardened, and they don't, they don't, they're covenant breakers. And it's just, a, it's an Old Testament seed form of the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. There, there's, you know, the gospel goes out, and those whom God intends to save, it hits their hearts, it makes them alive, they respond. And so I just see a great continuity, the, the, the covenants. There's much more we can say about the covenants. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but I think they're just, they're just pointing to the gospel in that way. So, yeah, um, I hope that kind of answers your question. But we're going to talk a little bit when we flip the page about some specific promises that God would have about land. That becomes kind of a, a complex issue that, that I think um, we need to think carefully about. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Well, let's flip the page then and look at this, this next question, which I think is an important one.
And this, this, one, this one, I think, um, is one that, that people get pretty feisty about. And, and look, let's just, let's just exhale here a little bit and, and think, think about this. I may be not quite right on this, but in unison with what I've just said about the one people of God, what about the land promises in the um, Old Testament, specifically to Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17? So we don't have them on the screen, but let me just read some of the land promises and how I think we should view the land promises. Um, let me just say up front, I think that the land promises are literally fulfilled and then some. So I'll explain that in just a second. So Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham land. In first, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I will, he says, um, I will give you, make you a great nation. Um, I will bless you, make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I'll curse, and, all, and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? Then verse, um, later on in chapter 12, he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then in chapter 13, he says to Abram and Lot, he says, um, for all the land that you will see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He repeats it in chapter 15. He says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the land of Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, the Hittites. I'll give you this land. And then he repeats it again in 17. Um, he says that I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God promised land as an everlasting possession to Abraham and his offspring. So the question then, who is the offspring of Abraham? And I think the Bible answers this, that for us in Romans 9 and Galatians 6. Abraham's offspring ultimately is Christ. We read in Romans 9, uh, verse uh, verse. 6, 7, and 8. Let's read that again. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So remember, uh, uh, Paul is saying that not all, just because you're ethnic, ethnically Jew doesn't mean that you are the offspring of, of Abraham. Now, now let's go to Galatians chapter 3, where Paul just sort of, just kind of clearly says it. Galatians 3, verse 15 um, I think I got, I don't know if they got 15 up there, starting in 16, Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul is now giving us a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament promise to Abraham of the land and blessings and inheritance and all of this. And he's saying that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So if it stopped there, we would say, well, all of us are locked out. Jews, Gentiles, everybody. The only person who gets anything is Jesus. But then let's keep reading to the end of chapter 3 of Galatians, where in Galatians chapter 3, Verse 28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so Paul is interpreting for us, he's answering the question, who is a true Jew? A true Jew is an ethnic believing Jew and a Gentile that's been grafted in, and a future or spattering throughout the church age, however you see it, ethnic Jew who has been regrafted into Christ. So then, what about the land? Well, in the New Testament, this specific aspect of the land and specific borders of, of the promise to Abraham that we see that we just read in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17 are blown up and expanded not to just a small little strip in Palestine, but it's expanded to the whole world. So read, let's read Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. Romans 4 verse 14. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be 
the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Wouldn't you expect there, if Paul, you know, kind of what the last time we heard about Abraham's land promise was in the Old Testament, and it was this more specific territorial boundary, and Paul, his commentary on that, the New Testament shedding light on the Old Testament, is that true Israel will not inherit a small sliver of land in the Middle East, but they will inherit the whole world. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as well, where Paul says that Christ is yours, the whole world is yours. I won't take the time to read that. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says uh, there in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek shall inherit the whole earth. And of course, when he's speaking about the meek, he's talking about the people. Here's how one Bible scholar, um, his name is Anthony Hokema, I believe he's passed away, wrote a very helpful book called The Bible in the Future. Here's a few uh, words from him on this. I think we got it on the screen. The first one there. Note that God promised to give the land of Canaan not just to Abraham's descendant, but also descendants, but also to Abraham himself. Yet Abraham never owned as much of a square foot of ground in the land of Canaan. We read that in Acts 7, verse 5. We went through that in Genesis a couple of months ago. Except for the burial cave which, which he, which, with which he purchased from the Hittites. Genesis 23. What now was Abraham's attitude with respect to this promise of inheritance of the land of Canaan? which was never fulfilled during his own lifetime. We get an answer to this question from the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, where we read, By faith he, Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By the city which has foundations, we are to understand the holy, holy city or the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, which will be found on the new earth. Abraham, in other words, looked forward to the new earth as the real fulfillment of the inheritance which had been promised him, and so did the other patriarchs. And then another quote. I think this whittles it down even more. Real helpful. When we properly understand biblical teachings about the new earth, many other scripture passages begin to fall into a significant pattern. For example, in Psalm 37, 11, we read, the meek shall possess the land. That's what Jesus is picking up in Matthew 5. It's significant to observe how Jesus, oh, here he says it. It's significant to observe how Jesus' paraphrase of this passage in his Sermon on the Mount reflects the New Testament expansion of the concept of the land. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. From Genesis 17:8, we learn that God promised to give Abraham and his seed all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. But in Romans 4:13, which we just read, Paul speaks of the promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the whole world. Note that the land of Canaan in Genesis has become the world in Romans. So will true Israel inherit the land? Yes and more. So Christians that are very um, passionate about Israel inheriting the land in the Middle East, I applaud and want to, uh, I, I, I want to join in that passion, but I think it's too small. It, 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 our hope, Israel's hope, true Israel's hope, any Jew's hope is not in their Jewness, and it's not in a, a, an eight-mile strip of dirt. It's in Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. So I, I think that's kind of, I think that in line with what I'm saying here is, is I think, a, a better way to look at um, the land promises in the Old Testament. Hebrews shed, we read Hebrews sheds more light on Abraham's understanding of this promise. He looked forward to the city which has uh, uh, foundations made by God. So some implications about how Christians should view modern-day political Israel. Well, and here's my problem with or, organizations like Christians United for Israel. I'm all for Israel. I love Israel. I love Benjamin Netanyahu. He doesn't believe in Jesus. I think he's a great politician. I wish he was running for presidency in the United States. I, I, I like the guy. He doesn't, he doesn't take any flack. Tells people like it is. We need a tough cat like that. But organizations like Christian United for Israel, I think, unwittingly blur the lines of what it means to be a true Jew. You will not be saved merely because you're Jewish. 
Unbelieving Jews are cut off. They're covenant breakers. And they have no right to the covenant. We should support Jews and love them and care for them. And we should preach the gospel to them so that they can inherit the true, the, the world, the universe. So they can inherit eternity with Christ. And certainly as we survey the land politically in the satanic kingdoms of this world and, and manifested in Islamic states that are molesting Israel, of course we should side with Israel. But as we side with poli- Israel politically for very, for very obvious reasons, we don't want to make them think that they're okay just because they're Jew, as if there's some Christian Jew, Jew, you know, Jew you know, partnership here, and we're kind of all, we all sort of serve the same God. That's to leave unbelievers in their unbelief, which will damn them to hell. So far more than American political support and American military might, which I'm all for, by the way, Israel needs the gospel. And I, I, know that, I know that Christians United for Israel believe that, but in their fervor to support Israel politically, I think they blur the lines of what Israel truly needs. That's, that's just my humble perspective. That's my humble perspective. So I'm all for Israel, and I'm all for Israel repenting and believing in Jesus. And I think that's what their only hope is. And I want to support them politically and I want to go to one of their commando schools. I think they're legit. I think we should learn stuff from them. I think we should do airport security like Israel does. I'd love that. And I, I want Netanyahu to come and speak at the UN and bust everybody's chops. But more than any of that, I want him to bow to the true King Jesus. Because Netanyahu and any Jew's hope is not the Gaza Strip. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new city which has... It's been built and made by God forever and ever. And it's far bigger than Palestine. It's the whole world. Yeah. Any questions on that before we wrap it up? I did not anticipate. I thought I was, I I almost asked somebody to bring me a flak jacket tonight. Maybe I'll get sniped on the way out. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. We'll breeze through point number three here. Three thoughts on better understanding prophecy. Read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Um, So we see Paul in Romans 4 and Romans 9 and Romans 11 and Galatians 3. Romans 2, we didn't even read that, where Paul says that a true Israelite is not one that's been circumcised in the flesh, but a true Israelite is one who's been circumcised in the heart the New Testament is going to shed light on Old Testament prophecies. So all these Old Testament prophecies to Israel, I think, will truly be fulfilled in true Israel. It's not that the church has replaced Israel. It's that Israel has always been true Israel. And God, in His graciousness, will be merciful towards unbelieving Israel and graft them back in. And so does Israel being reconstituted as a nation in 1948 have something to do with that? The regrafting in in the end times of maybe a great conversion of the Jews? Very likely. That's awesome. Wouldn't that be wonderful if God would, would spit in Hitler's face and his atrocity against the Jewish people would be just a means to regather and get a bunch of Jews in one place so there could be a mass evangelism of them? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. So, I mean, that's significant. But I'm saying that Israel has always been true Israel and the promises will be fulfilled in true Israel and God in his graciousness will will take unbelieving Israel and put a whole mass of them back in the tree and be glorified forever and ever and ever. Number two, read prophecy through a Christ-centered lens. Not a church-centered lens, not a Jew-centered lens, but a Christ-centered lens. And then understand the already not yet tension of Scripture. We've talked about that before. I tell you, I mean, even just personal sanctification, like I read in Ephesians 2, where like, I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. And the same man who wrote Ephesians 2, who said, I am seated with Christ in heavenly places, writes Romans 7, where he says that the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I should do, I don't do. (laughs) 
So we are already made perfect, but we are still becoming who we are becoming in Christ. I mean, that just, there's this tension between the ages where the kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully consummated. And then concluding thoughts about this whole four weeks. One, don't be spooked or fearful about the end of this age. Don't be spooked, right? Remember what we read a couple weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians? There's this place in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think it is, where Jesus treats the Antichrist like a dandelion. He, he plucks him up out of the field and goes, poof. He breathes on him. Poof. And he treats him like a dandelion, right? If your king, who you are in, who will not lose any of his people, blows on the man of lawlessness like a dandelion, then if God is for us, who can be against us? We will not fear, though the earth be removed. If I am in Christ, nothing can snatch me out of his hands. The one that can kill the body can't kill my soul. And no matter how painful life is on this earth, I will be with Christ and inherit the new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever right? It will all be worth it. Romans 8, 18, these momentary and light afflictions are producing in us a far greater weight of glory. So be encouraged. Don't be spooked. Two, don't be discouraged if all of this has been a little or very confusing, okay? Don't walk out of here thinking, oh my gosh, I'm on the JV. I can't get on the bus on Friday nights and play. Thursday nights is all I'm ever going to see any playing time. That's not true. Don't be discouraged if this has been a little or very confusing. Do be ready and sober-minded. Ephesians 5 says, understand the times and don't be stupid. That's what it says. Verse 15, look carefully. Then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Another version says stupid. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father in the name of Christ Jesus. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, lock arms with other Christians and do life together. Have your head on a swivel. Be sober-minded. Don't be a knucklehead. And march towards glory. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, let me just read this, this one verse. I mean, this is speaking exactly about the end of this age. 2 Peter, this is so good. This is so encouraging. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with, one, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to judge evil. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So be ready, be sober-minded, and then do be emboldened, and encouraged, Romans 8, 28. I have a little typo there. It's all the way through verse 39 as the end of the chapter. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. We, friends, we have nothing to fear. We can lean forward into this. No matter what some wacko, crazy Iranian dictator does, no matter what some disappointing president may decide, if God is for us, nothing can come against us. And not even death can separate us from God because death is merely God's servant to bring us into glory. And we will live with him forever and ever and ever to the praise of his glorious grace and to our ever-increasing joy. Questions? I'll hang around and, ask, and answer any questions you have. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for these dear friends. I love them. I pray this has been encouraging. 
Anything that I've said that maybe is off point um, or unhelpful, let it fall to the ground. Anything that's true and right and noble, praiseworthy, let it stick fast to our hearts. May it encourage us. As we've looked at the end times, may we be people that long for your appearing. May we be people that are marked by the hope of heaven. May the world see in us an otherworldliness. And may that otherworldliness make us mysteriously and remarkably useful in this world as we point people to the coming King who is good and gracious and righteous and holy and will come to establish his reign forever and ever. May we lean forward into that hope. Bless these folks, I pray, as they go about their week and bring us back into your Lord's house this Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen.